You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the show where we take a wander around the week in Apple, Apple News, Reviews, Technology, Associated Products and all sorts of other things that catch our eye. This is another episode of the Essential Apple Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to yet another edition. And uh, I expect some of you have noticed we've changed the theme tune yet again. Um, I may alternate this one with the uh, the other theme tune, but that theme tune was sent in by um, a young listener who doesn't particularly want to be named. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, maybe we'll have that alternating with the other theme tune. Anyway, this week we have a special guest. Um, I'm going to attempt to pronounce his Ukrainian uh, surname and not mess it up, but uh, it's Alex. I'm going to guess it's Sepko. Correct, correct. Oh, you, well. you, you're, you're, you're closer than most of people, so right. good, good for you. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to take a guess that, the, uh, that it starts like Tsar. So it, that makes it Zep. Hello. Oops. <laughs> oh, no, he's back. He's back. All right. Uh, we'll, uh, I will just explain to the listeners, um, if Alex's audio isn't perfect, he's driving um, and he has small children in the car. So uh, <laughs> two small children in the car with him. So if you hear some noise from his family, you'll have to forgive us. Uh, right. So Alex is the CEO of Skylum, uh, the makers of Luminar. Uh, and I believe you've simply, uh, quite recently, you've merged, have you not, with uh, Photo Lima or purchased Photo Lima? I'm not quite sure exactly what it was. Uh... It's it's um, it's it's more of a you know joining forces. We've been uh, we've launched Photo Lima as a separate business, but we always owned it. So it was three of us uh, who started uh, Skylum, who founded Skylum, and we co-founded Photo Lima as well. It's just. It's just that, you know, close to a you know, weird business decision to keep things separate. But then we figured out that we are stronger as a, as a single company that will simply you know, promote both uh, Photolima and Luminar and uh, future products under one, under one brand. So it's, uh, we, we didn't acquire it. We merged, we joined forces, if you want to put it this way. Yeah, that's because I, I did read that um, one of the co-founders was, if I got this the right way around, one of the co-founders of Skylum is a co-founder of Photo Lima or vice versa. I can't remember now. It's uh, I would say all of the co-founders of Skylum are also the co-founders of Photo Lima. Okay, right. So yeah. really, it's yeah. a it's a coming yeah. together. It's a synergy. Correct. A it's synergy a, it's correct. Merger. It's a synergy. Correct. And it it, it, it made sense uh, to do it earlier, but we kind of like we focused on other things. The business teams and the development teams were different, but the ownership was the same. And then we just thought that, you know, let's just put it all together and uh, develop it all as, you know, one thing rather than just keeping them separately. Well, that's fair. Makes, make, makes, makes things much easier for both the business owners and uh, the consumers as well. Because, uh, you know, for, for, for consumers, when they get some updates or news from, from Photolima, and that, that sounds very similar to, you know, to the communications that, to, that we keep, you know, around our other products. We just didn't want to con- confuse anyone. And uh, clarity is everything. So we, we decided that we'd like to keep things clear. Right. So, um, and just for a bit of clarity on, on that uh, point then, Alex, um, explain to me um, 
what Photolima does that is different to Luminar because um, I've used Luminar, but I've never used Photolima. And okay. I, I look at the, you know, I'm looking at what Photolima does and it seems very similar sort of thing, you know, with auto adjustment and uh, yeah. color, you know, your AI based uh, machine learning focused kind of auto adjustment. So, right. Right. Well, the dif- the difference is uh, the difference is in the user workflow and the user experience, and that's the 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 the, the main thing. So we imagine there are people like uh, you know like you on me for, who are non professional photographers, but would still like some sort of a control and have some experience with Lightroom or similar software. Then this is you know this is the audience for for Aurora or Luminar. But then there there is a massive audience of you know hundreds of millions of people who would never use a traditional photo software because it's either too complex, or they have no idea what saturation or clarity is, or they, they have no, they're not sure what the, you know, um, masking is or targeted, uh, you know, targeted editing is. So there are a lot of people who take photos, but who don't edit photos and who simply want to get great res- results either straight off a camera or automatically. So this is where Photolima comes. The, the the benefit of using Photolima is that you're not using any sliders. You just dump everything into the software, and then we use the deep machine learning to 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 balance the image, to improve the look of the image, um, as if you know a, a manual photo editor would do. So to put things th- simply, Luminar is for semi-professional, uh, serious amateurs, professional photographers who want to get to get more control and uh, you know, have more freedom in terms of editing and enhancing images. So, so yeah, so Photolima is for a massive audience of photo enthusiasts, photo lovers who just don't want to mess with sliders, don't want to mess with uh, controls, but mm-hmm. want that, you know, balanced, well, you know, well-executed look to their images that their camera can deliver necessarily straight from the, you know, straight from the raw image. Sort of a fully automated deep machine learning power. I mean, I think, I, I think, you know, I think because the concept of the software is 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 new to any, you know, to any user, basically, it 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 will be very important to, you know, to explain the, you know, to explain the vision behind it first, and then the the user experience, because very often when uh, you know when we look at the software and we think of photo editing, uh, the first thing that you know comes to mind is you know I, I sh- should I move sliders? Should I click buttons to apply presets? So I you know move curves and so on and so forth. And so even the the most basic photo software like Apple Photos, for example, brings you all those sliders and everything to adjust the image. And you know the the vision the the, the vision and the philosophy behind Photolima is um, as I said is basically as is is you know so simple and so so new that a lot of people just think it's uh, you know too simple and, and 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 therefore less powerful. But in reality, but in reality, there is a you know a very very complex math and engineering behind Photolima that makes things look so simple. And in reality, we look at almost uh, 50 different parameters when uh, you know adjusting the image so it's not just a, a preset or you know a filter that uh, makes an image better it's actually a different adjustment to every image that that you put inside the photolima so it will adjust images with different information differently it will it will it will enhance raw images better than jpegs for example because raw has more data it will 
you know, it will apply a lot of changes to dark images while it won't touch a lot, you know, a, lot, a more image with a better lighting condition. So, so it, but then it all comes purely automatically. And the idea is to save people from, you know, spending hours or even minutes using that manual photo editors. Okay. And, um, you were going. You were going to uh, explain to us about the uh, the machine learning, how that powers both Photo Lima and some parts of Luminar. Sure, sure. So when we look at Photo Lima, uh, we started uh, with uh, what is called uh, um, supervised machine learning, and uh, you know I'm not an engineer myself, not as smart as uh, the rest of the team. So uh, I'll I'll try to explain it in in very basic words. So. Uh, when I say supervised machine learning, that basically means our engineers have put a very, very extensive data set inside the PhotoLima engine. About, I would say, about two hundred thousand photos in total by, uh, you know, by by this date. And they were putting both before and after images of all kinds to teach the algorithm to move from, you know, an original image to the enhanced one. So originally, the images were enhanced by human in the machine looked at the way human was fixing those and eventually it, it was learning to fix the images itself so so basically we, we took a lot of before original images we took a lot of we processed a lot of images we took a lot of photos from our friends uh, who are photographers and put it inside photo lima and uh, this is this is this is how it learned to do tricks and uh, this is the kind of machine learning that's that's built inside photo lima and uh, so but right now it's only enhancement uh, uh which which works great for most of the photos but not as great as great as we wanted to to work so in august we will be launching a new version which will automatically enhance um, skin fix portraits make eyes look better and also add styles to the photos so it's not it's not it will not only uh, adjust the d detail saturation contrast and and these you know traditional adjustments it will also not by default by but if a customer wants it will also apply the stylization to the images making them look you know more analog more you know um, vintage if you want kind of like bringing those styles to the photos in, in addition to just adjustments right okay this is for photo lima and this is uh, this is for photo lima in in luminar it's um it's a little bit more complex because you know from luminar uh, we th we think and we want people to expect much more than from a, a photo lima from luminar we want people to expect uh, an alternative to photoshop and lightroom altogether so when we when we look at what machine learning can do for luminar uh, then we were looking at um, at, again, at, at the user experience and user workflows. So, for instance, we've noticed that an average photographer spends a lot of time in in Adobe Bridge in uh, in Camera Raw. Sorry about that. In Camera Raw, and they do all these, you know, basic manual adjustments with that, you know, with exposure and contrast and other things. Then they go to Lightroom, for example, stick with Photoshop and play with curves to adjust different areas of the image uh, manually. Again, from adjusting exposure, brightness, and contrast to saturation, highlights, shadows, and so on and so forth. So when we when we developed a, a filter called Accent AI in Luminar, we thought, you know, can we put all those dozen of different adjustments into one slider? And then when you move a slider, can we teach 
and artificial intelligence, can we, can we teach Luminar to analyze different parts of that image and apply selective adjustments based on, you know, on, on its learning, on, on what, what, what we teach it. And that's how, that's how the excellent AI filter was born. So, it, you know, when you, when you move it in, in Luminar, it applies, it's, it's like a base starting point for many photographers right now. So instead of just messing with, you know, five, six, seven different sliders, they just move accent AI and um, get the basic level uh, of, uh, of adjustment for, for the photos. And then they can, can move on and apply different, you know, other, other parameters and other, other things. So that's that's how we use you know that's how we started with AI and Luminar and now we are you know taking it a little bit further. So so with the next version, uh, we'll we'll introduce and that's a this is, I'm not I'm not sure if I can even say that for right now, but yeah that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway anyway we, we we you know we are done with the filter so it's not a secret we just need to wait until we we launch it. So so basically we we've noticed that a lot of photographers who use uh, Lumina are nature and landscape photographers. And one of the things that, uh, you know, these photographers usually spend mo most of their time with is the sky. Because you know that sky makes any photo, you know, the good sky will make a photo look great. Uh, the bad looking sky will just destroy the image. So we've developed a technology that can automatically detect the sky. And then you move a slider and it will advance, uh, adjust the sky and make it look more dramatic, uh, more vivid and, you know, more, more attractive. But what's, what's great about that is that if, even if you have lots of different objects um, on the foreground, like trees or rooftops or any, the, the, the adjustment won't touch that. It will only be applied to the sky, and then and then we we, we will use this as a similar machine learning tech in uh, fixing uh, skin, in working with some you know faces and so on and so forth. So while uh, just to make a long story short, and sorry for taking so long, no, uh, in 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 to, to make it really clear in the, in photo lemur, uh, we use AI and as I said, machine, some supervised machine learning um, to automatically adjust the image and help people save time without you know touching extra buttons and sliders. While in Luminar, we use uh, we use these artificial intelligence, these uh, algorithms to to help people uh, and users uh, perform. Um, traditional tasks more efficient and faster so it's not it, it, if you you will still need to move a slider to decide which you know which amount of um, change you want to apply but you know if you if, if with any other software you would spend you know a lot of time maybe minutes maybe more than that uh, fixing sky with different masks and uh, and layers you can do it with a single slider in lumina if uh, what would take uh, longer um, you know, time of adjusting the image and the basic parameters in your raw file takes a very, you know, takes seconds in one slider with Accent AI. So in Luminar, we, we are keeping it very, you know, high, high, we are keeping it very precise. And, uh, you know, we, we try to, um, you know, to meet the criteria of a professional photographer and just, you know, save, save their time and make their workflow more efficient. Taking it so instead of having to, as you say, instead of having to mess with the you know the saturation and the brightness and the contrast and you, you, yeah yeah the machine can basically do most of that for you and 
you can control how much you want to apply really correct think of it think of it you know any camera these days comes with uh, you know an auto mode or exposure compensation mode and it's not it's not just for beginners it's basically to save your time so you can focus on you know composition you can fo- focus on some other things so why should you know a software be all manual right you still get the full control over the final image because you have a lot of different tools but for some things it's it's great to automate the process as long as you can get uh, the same or better of the result than you would get manually it's it's all about uh, you know spending less and again it's 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 um, it's not probably the best statement from a ceo of a software company but we still try to uh, to have, to let people spend less time in front of a screen uh, with the software and more time you know taking photos so that's why that's why the whole approach to making the software well you know use it spend less time doing traditional manipulations if you want to put it this way but still get the same great results with the software yeah well that, that's great i mean i i do i know some of our listeners are luminar users um you know suffolk pete i know is a, a big fan um well, I think I, I think those those who are not users uh, and again feel free to you know cut this out if you want but I think that the best approach to get the you know the best way to get the feel of Luminar is to download the free version and then go to the workspace that's that we call Quick and Awesome and just use three basic sliders that we put into that into that workspace and those are the accent ai then saturation and then clarity and basically those three sliders um, can act instead of i would say maybe 12 uh, 15 different sliders in other software and get that quick and awesome look and it it's it's just less than 1% of everything that luminar has but it clearly you know it clear clearly communicates the the concept of uh, helping people perform complex things faster yeah. and then make photos faster. So just, you know, it it will take seconds to give to get an idea. Well I mean when we had um when we had Kevin on last year, um obviously the, the, this isn't a video show so people couldn't see, but um Mark, you know, chucked a, an image to him through through wire and said, I've got this shot and it's you know, it's not a great shot. It was a shot of some mugs uh, that were supposed to have been taken in the studio and they, you know, they weren't very well lit and uh, so on. And, you know, Kevin threw them in Luminar and thirty seconds later sent back up an image that was massively enhanced. So oh, wow. mm-hmm. you know, that was um in fact if you uh, if you go to I think it's Essential Apple sixty three, the uh the picture of the mugs is on the on the show art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, um, now, one thing I do want to ask you about, Alex, because uh, my listeners will beat me with sticks if I don't ask you about it, uh, and that's the digital asset management. Now, um, last time, you know, Kevin said that there would be digital asset management would be coming for Luminar, and I know a lot of the users who, um, you know, people in our in our Slack room, uh, particularly people like Alistair Jenks, who's a you know a real heavy. Um, you know, he takes a lot of photographs and he's very serious about his cataloging because a lot of his photographs are um, aerospace photographs. He's big on photographing. So uh, currently he uses uh, Lightroom, I think, and he uses a lot of nested tagging so that, um, you know, if he if he enters, um, let's say, Boeing, it will immediately offer him, you know, the sub tags for the different types of aircraft and then the nationalities and so on. So he's mm-hmm. very keen to um, hear... Uh, what sort of dig- digital asset management uh, 
you know, Skylam are working on and when it's likely to appear, because I think he's quite keen to shift over to using Luminar, but he's not prepared to move full time to Luminar until he can, you know, um, do his cataloging that way as well. Yeah. Well, I hear you. And I, I you know, I, I, I understand that perfectly. I'm, um, I'm a Lightroom user myself. I use Luminar as a plugin until I can move to our digital set management platform and, uh, you know, switch to Luminar hundred percent. So I, I, I understand, I hear you. And, uh, the the only thing I can I can tell you for sure is that we would you know we would have released it much earlier if it was not for uh, you know for the for our belief that uh, it we we are too late in the uh, you know too late in time to simply launch uh, a clone of Lightroom or simply launch something which will be you know less efficient for people than than Lightroom or uh, let's say less speedy than photo mechanics and when we when we when we started thinking of a, of a digital asset management a lot of people uh, who we talked to uh, you know asked us about it and then we started talking to these people and the more we talked the more we understood that first they don't simply want a clone of lightroom and the, the and secondly they, there are so many different workflows that these people uh, you know that these people have that just just guessing doesn't really make sense so so with with our digital asset management one one thing is for sure it's coming this year and one thing is for sure it's coming this uh, autumn uh now the the challenge is that if you want a, a, a real alternative and if you want people to to literally switch um uh, from you know from from other software uh then you you have to make it fast you have to make it uh, secure and you have to make it really simple and when they say simple you uh, what we are trying to achieve is we want people to clearly know how to use it you know within 10 seconds um within 10 seconds when after they launch the software and if they if we want these people to be familiar with the software 10 seconds after they launch it then that means it should start running really fast you know so they have enough time to even you know get familiar with the interface so with that in mind you know we are doing our best uh, the 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 software is currently in closed beta by uh, our team and uh, a number of photographers who who test it who are testing it so i mean definitely fall as early as possible and then uh, i've asked the team to start what we what we call internally developers diaries uh, starting from this july that will constantly update everyone on the progress and our thinking behind every feature and uh, every part of digital asset management as well as other software and i think I think you know, being a young company, one of the mistakes that we made uh, uh, earlier, um, earlier in time, was that we didn't communicate uh, the progress well enough. You know, we promised it, and then we did something else. But I think that we should start keeping keeping people, uh, keeping users more updated on the progress. And uh, uh, I, I I think you know we should manage the expectations uh, better. And explain what to wait, when when to expect the software update, and the so and so on and so forth, and that will help you know as uh, um, you know as uh, that will help users. And uh, I, I don't really like the word users, I'm, but I'm still I will help <laughs> photographers. Uh, will help photographers who expect uh, you know, the digital asset management kind of understand 
when it is coming, why why we are we haven't released it yet, when it is coming for Windows, when it is coming for Mac, and so on and so forth. The the Windows version uh, again, uh, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are Windows users, but the Windows will be slightly delayed. The Mac version will come first. We we decided not to wait until we able to launch both versions, and the reason for that is that you know we've been a Mac software company for quite a long time. And we started building our Windows development team only uh, two years ago. So we, we are, you know, we are very confident about the quality uh, of a Windows version, but we we do want to spend more time doing uh, quality assurance for it. So it will come as a little bit later. Um, but again, to make a long story short, um, definitely this fall, definitely very fast, very simple user experience. And, uh, you know, plus a number of cool tricks that other software doesn't have um, that will, you know, help make the management of images even more efficient. Yeah, excellent. That's good. And, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure that, um, for example, I know that Alistair, who, you know, who's uh, a regular contributor to this show and uh, was on a few weeks ago, uh, I know that, uh, you know, he would rather wait and have it work you know, superbly rather than um, have it rushed out and then find that it doesn't work as well as he'd hoped. So, you know, I, I think you're right. Just, you know, letting users and, um, you know, customers know what's happening is always a... Yeah, this is this is first thing. And second, uh, and the, again, this is this is this has been a belief and philosophy of our, you know, of myself and, and the rest of the team is that the competition on the photography software market is fierce. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not the time to just, you know, create a cool big marketing slogan and then uh, try to uh, announce that you are going to, you know, change the world and disrupt, disrupt the industry and uh, move Adobe from the, you know, from the first place. It makes a lot of development effort, a lot of human resources, a lot of research and everything to, to literally, you know, deliver something that's, um, that that's meaningful and that's you know that that has a quality that corresponds to the expectations so because there were so many different you know alternatives to adobe uh, over the last couple of years we feel that before you know just before launching our alternative again before making the splash before launching the product update we want to make sure that you know the team who is building it, and most of the team is uh, consists of you know either professional or amateur photographers. We are confident ourselves that will you know deliver something great to the photography community. So it's I mean I hate waiting myself, and uh, every time when engineering team tells me that they need some more time to check that to check this. I think that it could all everything could be done, you know, immediately because I have no <laughs> idea how hard that is. But when when I see what they, when they start talking and get trying to get me into that conversation, I understand that if it sounds complex, then it's definitely very complex in in on the execution level. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so it's it, it you know it's worth it's worth waiting. I I'm, I I strongly believe that uh, the best things. Uh, will always come uh, right on time when they when they are meant to come on time and i'm 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 really thankful to every luminar user and the uh, other photographers who bear with us and again just like i said we'll uh, we'll do our best to communicate the uh, more i'd say more in a more mature way like big companies do 
to not just you know just sit there and wait and yeah we'll do our best to manage the expectations in a more proper way all right that's excellent um and you have another product of course which i'd I'd like to talk about alex and that's the um aurora hdr correct yeah um yeah yeah, i mean i'm not really a photographer so can you i mean i know what hdr is but um could could you explain to me exactly what aurora hdr is designed to do sure sure and let me let me go back uh, a couple of years uh, uh, in the past and uh, tell you a little backstory but i promise to make it really fast so um we started as an iphone app company and uh, dived into a photography from an iphone ecosystem iphone space and then um uh, our cto um who is uh, dima uh, he, you know, he was one of the first to to, to get into a professional photographer, and uh, he was he was learning from from um, from th- three people basically. He was learning photography from Trey Radcliffe, Serge Remily, and uh, Scott Kelby. So these three people, uh, they you know they taught him on how to make photography and how to use the software and and you know place play with the composition and so on and so forth, and. Uh, Dima really liked Trey Radcliffe because of uh, his images back then. And Trey was a pioneer in HDR photography. He was one of the first who started to shoot brackets and merging that together. And uh, he was one of the first making these vivid, highly contrast, detailed, you know, sometimes oversaturated uh, images that we, we know as HDR photos. So HDR photography is not just that. There are different, you know, varieties of HDR photography. But, you know, Dima, Dima got in, into that photography thanks to Trey Radcliffe, and he started shooting brackets and so on and so forth. And he was using... Um, he was using Adobe Photoshop. He was using Lightroom. He was using Photomatics. He was using many, many different pieces of software to blend the, his HDR images together. And again, the, the, the workflow was not efficient at all. So three, three and a half, four years ago, uh, we didn't know a lot of people in the photography industry. And we obviously didn't know Trey Radcliffe, but we knew Laura Rubin, who is a U.S. wildlife photographer, and she knew Trey Radcliffe. So we asked Laura to introduce us to Trey and see if Trey wants to do a software, uh, you know, an HDR software together. So, you know, luckily for us, Trey said yes, and this is how we launched the uh, Aurora HDR together. That uh, that's yeah, that's a, that is an HDR photography editor um, that can you know can work well with different brackets that can produce a really great either natural or extreme HDR uh, from you know from your photos. We are working to make Aurora a really good single image editor dedicated to uh, you know that HDR look. So it's not not an alternative to Lumina or Lightroom, but there are a lot of photographers who like who like you know HDR looks in in, in sort of point. So this is this is for whom we are building Aurora. Um, we we first thought it's a very small niche to tell you the truth. So launched it for Mac only, but then um, but then we launched it for Windows and got blown away by the number of people who downloaded it. And then when Apple named it the uh, best uh, best app of the last year, we understood that uh, you know even HDR photography is not is first of all it's not about HDR photography and niche anymore. And second, it's not about professional photography anymore. It's more about everyone who you know who wants some 
some you know some some good looks some some nice results with uh you know with uh, with his photos so that's how you know that's how a niche software aurora hdr has become a very massive uh, mass market tool and uh, you know we, we launched it we launched it over four years ago and now it's literally as you know has a decent number of downloads around the globe people love it trey continues to use it serge remily uses it as his default uh, hdr software he has produced a number of great books uh with with you know photos made with aurora so i i would say if you want to separate three three pieces of software that we are currently creating for consumers then uh, uh aurora is for hdr uh classic hdr uh i i, I would even say fake hdr look if you want to use it with a single yeah. image the sort of um, single image hdr yeah with correct that. Adobe, yeah, yeah, Adobe started doing that, didn't they? Where you you take a, a single image and um you give it an HDR look by right, right, by altering right. the you know the dark areas and the light. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So so this is this is what Aurora HDR, uh, and then we we are launching a new version in September with a, with a new algorithm dedicated to uh, mostly to real estate and architecture. Uh, photographers because there's a very certain criteria that they have towards the HDR images but but then it it will work great with nature as well then we have luminar an upcoming i wouldn't i wouldn't call it an alternative to um, adobe lightroom right now but we are building it as the one we are building it as an upcoming uh, alternative right now it's a complement because you can use it as a as a plugin as well as a standalone software and then we have photolima which is a, a very consumer oriented uh, automated photo enhancement software so this is what we have for for photographers who are individuals for consumer photographers well you know that sounds like a very um a very broad stable really alex something for everybody right we we thought that we you know we 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 really thought that and we still think that we are missing a mobile aspect to it and then we we thought that we were always missing a a cloud-based photo software or photo solution so you know but then on a on a desktop windows and mac we do have uh you know a a pretty good uh, uh, family of products and uh, this year we'll we'll also launch cloud-based solutions just to make sure that if there's if there is there photographers on a mobile or tablet or anywhere you know linux maybe uh google pixel book on android then they can use some of our tech in the cloud as well so we'll be launching some cloud services for um i, I wouldn't say services but cloud photo editing tools uh, for businesses and uh, consumer photographers alike oh well excellent well wow. Thank you very am much. I, yeah. Am I being am I being too detailed and no, uh, no you know, not too, at all. You're fine. Too boring. <laughs> no, not at all. It's absolutely Thanks. fascinating. Um, and Thanks. you know, I assure you, this is exactly what um, um, you know, the listeners love. One of the things they love when we have um, you know, uh, industry people come on is the you know to let them talk in depth because oh. what what my listeners like to hear you know is sort of the the inside story as it were rather more than than just the marketing pr release they like to hear um you know what the developers or the um you know the company owners or the, you know the people behind the software what drives them and and what motivates them and and what their goals are um so that's no that's excellent um and thank yeah. you very much for coming on alex 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, invite us more. Always happy to talk and, you know, share some insights and some, and of course, talk about the photography. Well, of course. And, uh, well, when you know, maybe later in the year when some of your new products are out, we'll have you back on again. You got it. You got it. Anytime. Anytime. All right. Fabulous. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you. Have a fantastic day, fantastic evening. And, uh, yeah, have you know, enjoy taking great photos. That's huh. that's probably the best thing. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Alex. And that was Alex Sepko, the uh, CEO of Skylum Software. And thank you very much, Alex, for agreeing to come on our show. Uh, and now for the rest of the show, I am going to be joined by Suffolk Pete. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm all right, mate. It's very hot today, isn't it? Yeah, hot. Hot and sweaty. Incredibly warm. Yes. Yes. I yeah. don't know what the temperature is. About 29 degrees, I think. It must be. It's 27 in our kitchen. At the moment, I reckon. I reckon it's probably thirty outside. Yeah, but it's some um, typical English weather. It's hot, but also sticky. Anyway, yeah. and there no, we go. And no end in sight, from what I've seen on the uh, Met Office app. The west of England, uh, southwest England, and West Wales have got a yellow uh, thunderstorm warning. Yeah. So, and I, I did chuckle this morning when the news uh, said it's the first time that they have um, issued a thunderstorm warning, and then. And then it was pointed out they've only started um, issuing them last week. And this is the first one. But the, <laughs> the BBC news story said it's the first time the Met Office have issued a thunderstorm warning in its 140-year history. Uh, yeah, like that... it's like the, that makes it the worst thunderstorm ever. No, no, it's just the first one they've introduced after yeah. they've decided they're going to do it. Yeah, yeah, so that did make me chuckle. Click, clickbait or what? <laughs> Uh, right. Well, um, so what have we got this week, Pete? There was, well, um... I think you, uh, you posted something in the Slack room earlier this week that's, uh, close to both our hearts and that's, uh, font management. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, font management. Um, now obviously being in, uh, you know, the professional, uh, design side of the industry, uh, fonts are something that you have to have a lot of, mm. uh, you you tend to collect over time an awful lot. I think I've got about nearly thirty thousand. That's quite um, impressive. In individual faces, yeah. although there's probably an awful lot of duplication in mm. there. I mean, I could probably tell you I've probably got twenty different helmets, yeah. um, for example, and probably ten different aerials, um, and so on. Um, and also, you, you know, you end up with copies, so I can't tell you how many different sorts of Garamond I've got. Yeah. And, 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 Garamont. and you can't you can't tell us that because you you don't have proper font management is that right uh well <laughs> do i have a proper font manager yes right. um but you know uh thirty thousand. i can't be bothered to count them yeah. uh, <laughs> uh now way way back when in the days of yore um the only way to activate fonts was using a thing called the da font manager and you had to insert the fonts into the system or take fonts out mm. of the system um, and to some extent, that is still pretty much how most font, you know, most people who don't have a font manager work. You you put the fonts in the fonts folder um, and then you have a list of you know, 200 or 500 fonts or whatever it is. And those are always in your font menu and you never really do. Yeah. 
Well, um, obviously, back in the day, uh, professionals soon broke what in System 6, I think, was a 128 typeface limit. There was a 100, you could have 128 typefaces in the system. Really? Is that all? Yeah, yeah. Back in System 6, that was, I think, all you could only have 128 faces yeah. in the system. So uh, the font manager that uh, everybody used way back then and for a long, long time was a, uh, an application called Suitcase. Yeah. Um, and Suitcase has been owned over the years by a variety of... Suitcase uh, originally was simply a tool that allowed you to choose some fonts and say, I'd like these fonts turned on, please. And uh, it would turn those fonts on. And when you're done, you could say, turn those fonts off. And that was a way to break the 128 font yeah. limit. Uh, obviously, the the Mac and uh, everything else has moved on a long, long way since there. But you know, nobody wants to be dumping thirty thousand fonts into their system. No. It's not going to fit. Besides which, your font list would be you know completely. You'd never find anything. <laughs> would be unmanageable. So obviously, the the uh, a font manager is an application that allows you to create groups of fonts, uh, sets of related fonts and most importantly of course simply to activate and deactivate fonts on the fly yeah. uh, for, for use um suitcase is uh, still around it's now called suitcase fusion um i stopped using Fu suitcase fusion some years ago when i found it became very very sluggish um and it, it didn't seem to like operating nicely with uh, the adobe suite right. and so i changed over to um what was at the time i believe called liner type font explorer pro uh, that started out as a, a free app actually just called font explorer if i recall but liner type bought it and um now i think it's just called font explorer pro again okay. um but both of those products are not cheap they're not super expensive i think they'll set you back sort of six pounds mm -hmm. buy um but if you're not a professional that's quite a lot of money to yeah. lay out simply to be able to turn fonts on and off at will. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, there were there did used to be a few more font um, handling applications back in the day, but many of them have fallen by the wayside. Yeah. So I was quite yeah. I was quite pleased to come across an article on I think it was on um, Tuts Plus the tutorials um, right saying um, I think it was something like nine great font management apps that you should explore. Um, some of them were for Windows and some were for Mac. Um, and amongst them I came across what is really a little bit of a gem, and that is uh, Fontface, a free, beautiful, and fast font manager. And this uh, this is app is available for Windows and Linux and Mac. Um, it's free to download and use. It, it does all the things you'd expect to do. That is, allows you to make groups of fonts, turn fonts on and off, uh, all, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's very. It seems relatively quick. It seems uh, competent. I've I did install it and, you know, chuck 30,000 fonts at it and see how it coped. Mm. Um, it started for a little bit, you know, on, on that lot, but it, it seemed to load most of them. It does all the things um, you really want it to do. And uh, it is free to use. Well, uh, there's a, yeah, yes, brilliant. It's, it's, it's completely free. Um, <clears throat> there's an, a mode called awesome mode, which <laughs> I think uh, they ask you to pay uh, to get the awesome features costs i think it's three dollars a month so there's a subscription right um and that allows uh, a few you know really quite advanced features and it turns on auto at activation of uh, fonts if you're using creative cloud apps. right so that, yeah you know if you open a, a newsletter that you're designing in 
in in in, in design say mm. um it would find and open all the fonts that are in there without rather than telling you you need to open these fonts it'll do it for you but i have to be fair uh if you're if you're a non um you know if you're a non-professional user mm. And you're looking for a free uh, font management app. I would probably say you are most likely not using Creative Cloud. Um, no, that's right. Yeah. You yeah. know, but e- even so, uh, it, it works perfectly well. It seems to work uh, pretty nicely. It's very clean, um, really good looking. And so, yes, I've I've put that down for the uh, chirp of the week. I have to say. Uh, yeah, I can tell you what. I'm on their website now, and it does look quite interesting. You can create um, uh, collections. Uh, on the yeah. fly for things, you know, for uh, fonts that you use for a poster design. Uh, you can just uh, pick them up and drag them in there. Um, obviously, yeah. you can make favorites. You can, uh, you know, you can pre- preview all your fonts that way. Yeah, it's fantastic. Awesome. This, um, and, you know, like you, you, I've got a lot of fonts. I've got about 3,000 fonts. Um, and we used to use, in my old uh, job, we used to use um, Suitcase, which I used to enjoy. But, um now I just, you know, uh, do um, graphic design for fun, really, at home. Then uh, suitcase is a bit of overkill, and it costs money, so I don't, uh, I don't bother. But this looks ideal. Yes, this, you know, I'm really, I think I'm really probably going to bang the drum about this one because font management is one of those things. That if you've used it, you know, in a professional or a semi-professional context, going back to not being yeah. able to do yes. it is really a fag but at the same time as i say most professional font managers are not only money but often quite a lot of money. yeah 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 they're not cheap are they they used you know, to they're be not, they're not 15 20 dollars you know they no. they tend to be 70 80 100 yeah yeah they, they used to be one of the app store that i used whose name can't i can't remember now and but it's fallen by the wayside because i think it was um it's no longer supported or it it disappeared i can't remember uh what happened to it but um yeah that that went and uh yeah since then i've just been um doing it manually really well i mean of course on the mac you have got font book but yeah font book is a bit clunky to be honest yeah. it doesn't it doesn't feel um yeah. a much, it doesn't feel much better than doing it manually to be honest no it's um, not and you have to spend so much time setting it setting up font favorites and collections etc Sometimes it's easy to write down your favourite fonts on a piece of paper, <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. just when you're so, in I mean, Quark or one, whatever. I mean, on just... their on their site here, um, font base it says, uh, and that they're at fontba.se. Very clever. Um, font management perfected. All platforms, professional features, beautiful UI, totally free. The font manager of a new generation, built mm. by designers for designers. Now we hear a lot of that sort of thing when you, we do, you know, we? go to app sites. Uh, but um, you know, I, I can't say I've used this in anger, really. But I've, I've played with it, and uh, it looks very good. And I have to say, like you, Pete, I think I'm going to be installing this on my Mac at home because mm. obviously I don't have a font manager on my Mac at home. Um, and I do miss it. I really do. Um, I I just like the you know obviously that's what I do, and I I like playing with fonts. I like fonts, so the ability to switch fonts on the fly is is something I really miss mm. when I'm when I'm working at home. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, it's available for Windows, so I, I might be able to put a font manager on my bloody Windows virtual machine because let's face uh-huh. it, font management on Windows is pretty much non-existent. Yeah. yeah. 
Definitely. You know, you have to dump everything in the system and live with it. Um, and apparently this, this will fix that. So I'll be experimenting with that on my virtual machine for sure. Yeah, uh, so yeah, and it's something good. I might be able to explore at work because, um, you know, I use Windows 10 at work now. And um, although we're just getting a new IT manager, so I'll probably leave that until September and then uh, <laughs> just uh, add it to the list of stuff I wanted <laughs> I want added to my machine. <laughs> Either that or you've got to sneak it in now. Yeah, sneak it in now, yes. Sneak it in now before they go, what's this? What's oh, this? It's always been yes. there. Don't, don't worry about that. It's always been there, mate. Yeah, don't, that's it, yeah. You don't need to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, nothing to see here. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Move along. <laughs> Move along. So, yes, you're right. That that was a really good find, actually. Um, And as we sort of seem to be doing the worth of chirps first, mm-hmm. and uh, no reason not to, I suppose, Um, I will just say that Donnie's uh, giveaway for his uh, Rock Picks, Doodled Notes, and 11 Kickers sticker set mm-hmm. Uh, is is still available. I've still got some uh, still got some codes for those. So if anybody wants a set of Donnie's stickers, mm-hmm. which are available in the US, the UK, and Canada, still sorry, Alistair, um, send me an email at essentialapple at pseudomail. That's s u d o mail dot com, and I'll send you a set. Yeah, yeah they look really send good. You. Yep, yep, and I will send you a uh, some codes to redeem uh, for these three sets of stickers. There we go. Excellent. Um, and also, Mac Jim has sent in a Vanja USB 3 card reader, USB Type-C, USB 3A, uh, SD, micro SD card reader, and adapter for about 5 million other types of yeah. mini SD cards. So, so um, the, the picture on the Amazon website seems to have lots of things sticking out of it. Yes, it, it seems to um, take a lot of different cards. It's about, um, well, I noticed there were, Three different types available: uh, a six ninety nine one, an eight ninety nine one, and a ten ninety nine one. Um, and they vary in their in their connections mm. available. Uh, the cheapest one is USB two A and micro USB. The um, the middle price one, the eight ninety nine one, uh, interestingly has a rather clever uh, USB A two, which flicks up to reveal oh. a micro USB inside it. That's clever. clever. Um, and a USB-C on the other end. And then the third one, the most expensive one, is USB 3A and USB-C. Um, and so they're $6.99, $8.99, and $10.99. So if you... Um, Pete, there's not a lightning one. That's the only thing. Not yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, I could, um, I could probably do with that. I think there are lightning ones available. You'd have to dig on Amazon, Pete. I think um, okay. you can get... Yeah. Similar, not from them, but similar yeah. product. But that's um that's a tip there from from Mac Jim. Quite a you know un, sort of under ten pounds and get a USB read all sorts of cards device. So ah right, well I, I perhaps we'll do some stories now. Yeah, <laughs> let's do some stories. Ah uh, well, we've had Tim Cook defends controversial focus on social issues and says Apple sticks to its policy, not politics. Um, did did you see that? Did you see I that did, interview? Yes, uh, I didn't see it. I read through the uh, script of the uh, interview. Oh yeah. right, yeah, yeah. Um, um, it's quite heartening to see he seems to have um, picked up where um, Steve Jobs uh, uh, probably left off. Um, you know, Apple is a company with um, with some morals, it would seem. Yes, I, I, you know, I don't know that it's a controversial focus on social issues. I don't mm. think. I, I think Apple have always kind of. I, I know, obviously, some people say that 
um, Tim, um, well, I'm pretty sure Tim has mm. um, advanced that that stance because you know he came out as gay, um, openly came mm. out as gay. I think he's the first American CEO to ever do so. Um, he certainly, you know, encourages the Apple um, employees to march at Pride and whatnot if yeah. they want to. Um, you know, they have a fairly heavy stance on. Um, Solar power, don't they? Renewable yeah. energy, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, and why not? I, I, I don't think there's anything controversial. Why should, why should a company not have a moral stance? Yeah, I, I don't. You know, they, they, they say that they're for diversity and openness, and they're against, you know, um, yeah, as, racism. And as Tim Cook says, and, that companies are a collection of people, and therefore, by extension, should have values. Um, yeah, and I think he's right. Yeah, um, I, I do. And they've made a, you know they've made a stand again as well, haven't they, on privacy and data? Yeah, you know, yeah. uses data and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, well done, well done, Uncle Tim. Yes, I think. Yeah, that we have to say about that. Quite yeah. right. And keep waving the flag, rainbow coloured or otherwise. Um, and uh, yeah, possibly sort of the biggest story or not of the week, depending on your point of view. <laughs> the Amsung Apple Samsung thermonuclear war <laughs> is over. Oh right. Um, now, the link I've got here is, but at least we got these iPhone prototype photos from the battle. This one was on Business Insider UK, um, and I picked that up because there are some photos that have apparently come to light as part of the whole shenanigans. But, um, yes, it appears to have died with a whimper. Um, yeah. Apparently, Apple and Samsung came to an out-of-court settlement, which is not being disclosed to anybody. Oh, um, after uh, what the last the last court case ended with, Apple getting awarded half a billion as opposed to the billion they were awarded previously. Hmm. Um, and it's been booted up down the legal ladder. Um, apparently, out of court, Apple and Samsung have agreed uh, an undisclosed settlement and agreed that they should just sweep it under the carpet and stop worrying about it. You can't help thinking that. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps if um, they'd got together and sorted this out seven years ago instead of starting a seven-year legal battle. I think the lawyers might have had something to do with that. Yeah, precisely, yeah. It's like one of those, there's like a bad divorce gone horribly wrong. Um, When I I, heard that, I I couldn't help thinking, and for an undisclosed sum, hmm. I couldn't help thinking of that thing in trading places where they end up, and then, you know, the the bets for a dollar. Yeah. (laughs) I can imagine the chairman of Samsung and Uncle Tim getting together and like, can we just settle this? Look, I'll tell you what, here's a dollar. Yeah. That's it, yeah. Here's a dollar. It like if I give you a dollar and admit yeah. that we stole off you, will that do? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, oh, all right, we, fine. Yeah, I'll take We're the dollar and uh, and and we'll take an admission from you that you yeah you stole it from us and uh, you stole it and that will do right. Yeah. Just admit you stole it and give yeah. me a dollar and we'll never mention it again. I think the happiest person in the world about that is going to be Bart. Bart Bouchots will never have to. <laughs> Talk about the uh, <laughs> about the uh, Apple Samsung law case, which has been going on longer than he's been doing his show. Uh, there. Right, right, yeah. Um, no. Well, I, all I can say about that is, yeah, really, couldn't they have done that some time ago? Um, there. Uh, Apple is rebooting its Maps app with rebuilt Map data. Yeah, um, interesting. Carl was talking about this, actually, on the Mac and Forth hmm. show. Um, 
Yeah, they're well. Basically, they say they're going to rebuild uh, Apple Maps from the ground yeah, up, uh, starting in San Francisco. And, What's the problem? Yeah, of course. Yes, <laughs> and they have their own uh, mapping vehicles, just like Google. Yeah, well, they—they've been like Google. They've been having their own cars yeah. going around, yeah. getting kind of street map yeah. level material. Um, and apparently, they've been buying in all new high resolution um, satellite data. Mm. Um, and apparently they're going to rebuild the whole thing gradually over the next few years from the ground yeah, up. Yeah, interesting. Um, uh, they say they've been collecting data from 2015 from Apple map vans, high-resolution satellite imagery, and what Apple calls probe data from iOS devices. I'm, I'm interested in that probe data from iOS well, devices. Uh, uh, what, uh, what Carl was saying is that uh, if you opt yeah. in... Ah, uh, uh, right, okay, in, yeah. If you've opted in uh, on when you uh, turn on the location services on all your iOS, yeah. I think there's a there's a button saying, "Are yeah. you happy to share data with Apple?" Right. Yes. Um, what they're saying is that most of that data is actually kept on your device, yeah. um, but it's sending information when you uh, make a journey, yeah. but it doesn't div- divulge the start of the journey or the end. Okay. So it, I don't know quite how they make that work. I guess if it's processed on the on your device. Hmm. It only sends the information from the middle of the journey, you mm. know, say 10 minutes after you start and 10 minutes before you end. But anyway, apparently it does not divulge where you started or where you ended. And mm. it's anonymized in the usual Apple manner. Yeah. Yeah. So it just sends a load of data about the journey okay. um, and how it relates to the what Apple think about their map. And they're using that as a, another way to... Mm. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. Um, I'm not a huge Apple Maps data, uh, you know, a ha- Apple Maps user, but I have used it. And despite all the, you know, snarky comments that people make, I've, whenever I've used it, I've never found it to be any worse than um, than anything else I've used. No, no, I, I use it um, all the time for uh, SatNav uh, and the like. Uh, in fact, yeah. I've got a SatNav app that I've paid for on my iPhone, which I hardly ever use now because I just yeah, right. it's I just use the Apple Maps app all the time. I mean, I've, I tend to use a sat, a fr- I've got a free sat nav app called NavMe, mm-hmm. um, and that's N A V M I, a bit like the Nintendo Mies. Don't ask me why. Uh, it didn't used to be called that. It, it's had about four names, mm. and it keeps it, its look and feel keeps changing. I think it keeps changing hands, but it still keeps working. And it's, as far as I can tell, it's powered by uh, the OpenStreetMap mm. data. Um, that's very good, very, very good, and it's free. Um, and that has in-app purchases. You can buy. You can have Samuel Samuel L. Jackson tell you the details. <laughs> you know, if you want to give them five dollars, or you yeah. can have, um, you know, um, whatever. <laughs> Crocodile Dundee yeah. tell you the instructions, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and you can you can purchase uh, things like uh, speed camera location, and um, yeah. I think you can pay to have a sort of ways like traffic avoidance, those sort of things. But it, you know that is. Uh, that's pretty good, but it's not perfect. Actually, and I noticed that um, obviously they're starting in America with I, um, and it's going to be rolled out in iOS 12, starting in Northern California and then uh, across the rest of the US. Um, so it's going to be some while before it gets stuck in the UK. <laughs> As poor old Alistair Jenks in New Zealand said, well, 
bugger. I don't think it's going to do any good for me. No, yeah, it'd probably be iOS 13 before um, it gets... Uh... Well, I don't think... And, and there's a whole load of things he hasn't got yet <laughs> in New Zealand. They can't get they can't get Apple Pay. They can't get... Oh, really? Home pods. They can't get... Oh, there's all sorts of things he can't get oh. and not available in New Zealand. It's unbelievable. Anyway, uh, there we are. So, uh, yeah, I found that quite interesting. Hmm. Um, I guess they're just going back to the start saying, you know, let's uh-huh. just start build, rebuilding the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think they want the uh, everything under their own control rather than having to pay anybody else for um, yeah. uh, services. I mean, they are. It says they're buying high, you know, they are buying in high-resolution satellite data. I, I yeah. don't know where they got it from before. I, I think they might have um, had to kind of buy what they could get originally to make the best of mm. it. But there we go. There we go. Um. Well, I'll tell you what, Pete, why don't we take a quick break yeah. and uh, we'll have um, John can tell us. I believe he's got a, a bike courier bag to review this week. Um, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the security story, shall yeah. we? Okay. Lovely. All right, then. All right. We'll take five. Cheers. We've been talking on Nemo's hardware store about a lot of accessories and other great items for travel. But what are you going to carry all this stuff in? Our friends at Waterfield and their website is sfbags.com. The company is Waterfield Designs, but their website is sfbags.com, SF like San Francisco. This product is called the Vitesse, V-I-T-E-S-S-E, Cycling Musette, M-U-S-E-T-T-E. Comes in two colors, brown or navy. I like the brown color better, but the navy is still quite attractive. I just prefer if it's going to get all beat up. I want it to look more brown to begin with rather than blue. And you can get it with or without a flap. Without the flap, which I highly recommend to get, it's 69 and with the flap, it's 89 in the U.S. So the one I have is the Brown Vitesse Cycling Musette with the flap. And you've seen cyclists and messengers wearing these things all over town. It's got a thick unpadded double canvas really strong canvas strap that goes over one shoulder and then around my back and then on the back the musette sits it's about a foot by foot and a half in its dimension it has a round knob for closing it very low-tech and retro just snap the leather flap into this round knob and that holds it in place and inside there's just a large open space again about a foot by a foot and a half by about uh, two to three four inches deep or across and then there's two smaller flaps two pockets that you could put chargers phones pencils sandwich other stuff in so if you're going to carry your computer or Go to the gym, put your shoes in here, put your change of clothes. It's very, very basic. The one single compartment and then the two slide-in deep pockets with no closers on those on the inside. They're all open. So it's very, very basic. Stow and go. Put your stuff in here, fling it over your back or your shoulder, get on the tube, get on the bus, get on the bike, go in the car, go on foot incredibly strong and durable waxed canvas. I've been using these waxed canvas products from Waterfield Design, sfbags.com, 
for many, many years. These things will outlast me and you put together. It's a strange thing to feel and see when you first get the rugged, sort of weathered look, the pre-weathered look of their waxed canvas. But do not be confused about the quality at sfbags.com. Waterfield Designs and SF Bags makes good stuff, fairly priced, that will really, really last forever. And you can go onto their website, see the different colors, see the different designs and the specifications. But for $89 US, well, let's see the reviews, huh? It's got five stars based on 77 reviews. Terrific, super versatile, beautiful design, best quality and detail. It's a true love. Hmm. People really like this case. So have a look at their website back next week. And thank you, John. That was an excellent hardware store and all the uh, links and prices for that courier bag will be in the show notes, of course. So, uh, Pete, we're going to move on. Um, and we were talking in the break uh, about what is one of the biggest stories of the week. Uh, not an Apple story, really, a technology story. And that's the new Microsoft Surface leak reveals a radical new features, mm. according to Forbes. Um, and this is all over the web. I mean, you can find stories about this everywhere. Um, and this is um, leaks about their Andromeda project, um, which is a kind of spiritual successor, we're told, to the courier device, which was the one we couldn't remember the other week, by the way. I said I thought it was Slate, but apparently that was something else. The the two-screen concept device that never went anywhere that um, Microsoft were talking about some years mm-hmm. ago was called Courier. Right. Um, but this is described as something the com- company has quietly incubated internally and will create a new and disruptive device category. Well, I think we've heard that quite a lot. <laughs> um, however, uh, it will influence the overall surface roadmap and blur the lines between what is a PC and what is mobile. It's a new pocketable surface device form factor, bringing together innovative new hardware and software experiences to create a truly personal and versatile computing experience. Well, that's a lot of marketing. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that comes to nothing. Ow. However, um, Microsoft have unsurprisingly refused to comment yeah. on this leaked document content. However, um, it does confirm various things that have come up in the past. Um as they say here, uh, smartphones and smaller mobile devices have been a blind spot for Microsoft in recent years. Now, I don't think that's strictly true. No. I'll be fair. Um, you know, Microsoft did bring out the Microsoft phone with the, you know, the Windows 8 yeah. um, interface. Yeah, and, and actually, I quite liked yeah, that. Yeah, same here. I must be the, uh, I thought I was the only Apple no, that actually no. liked it. <laughs> I liked it. I, and actually, it got a lot of critical acclaim for not doing the Android or Apple row of apps. Yeah. Um, and I really liked it. And they had a, a short burst of success because they, they brought out some phones at very reasonable price point um, that appealed very much to you know parents buying yeah. uh, phones for teenagers. I remember I bought a, a couple for my girls. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it made a lot of sense. Were, but they were too late. And they couldn't get the apps and they didn't get traction. And sadly, um, they let it go. Um, and whilst I can understand why they let it go, because I mean, their, their share dropped to nothing and they could just couldn't, they just couldn't get the apps. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my girls 
ended up basically tossing their Microsoft phones in disgust because they couldn't get Snapchat yeah. and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't get the official Snapchat. Yeah. They couldn't get Twitter and they couldn't get this and they couldn't get that. And it just became like a farce, really. Um, so I don't, I don't think that it, it really saying it's a blind spot is true. I think they tried, but they just they were too little, too late, and they never got traction. Yeah. Um, however, the surface, of course, seems to be the one area where they have raised a reasonable challenge. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it looks um, the most Apple-like product from a non-Apple supplier. Um, I, yeah. I really like the look of it. Yeah, personally. And I notice it's being promoted heavily because if you, uh, certainly on the BBC, mm. where you used to see iPhones and iPads everywhere, yeah. you now see an awful lot of Surface. Yes, yeah. Um, there we go. That's product placement. For you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, the concept behind this thing appears to be that it will be a foldable tablet of some kind. Um, uh, yes, uh, a pocketable device with a wraparound screen. Yeah, that hinges out to form a tablet-like experience. Now that's yes. not quite the same thing as a folding a folding display, is it? No, I mean the concept renders here sort of show it as a folding display because yeah. it could be two. It could be two screens. Yes, yeah. but I guess you know people say, "Oh, well, two screens." It's like it's not the same. But if it's done right, the, I mean the bezels on modern devices are down to nothing. I mean yes. you know I've got a two-screen. You know you've seen my setup at work. Yeah. I have two monitor display and obviously there's a good inch of bezel down the between the screens but you don't see it when you're working no. obviously i don't i don't drag stuff across you know literally across both screens but um or not often actually and also if you're gaming and you've got more than one display um you can get these uh plastic um clear plastic um fresnel lenses clip onto the edge of your display and then you clip the two displays together and it merges uh, the displays and you don't see the bezel, which I think is really clever. Okay, what does that do? Sign up. Well, because um, it's, uh, you know, a bit like um, a Fresnel lens, you know, like you used to get in the old 3D um, pictures. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah. it's a um, uh, it's smooth plastic on one side and on the other it's... Uh, uh, it's triangular it's ridges of prisms, isn't that's it? It's it's prisms, yes, and uh, it just essentially takes the uh, image from both monitors and directs it through this lens, and it kind of blurs the um, the the edge. It does look really quite effective. Oh yeah, I can imagine that. It'd be a bit sort of um, yeah, you're going to get a blurry odd bit in the middle, but yeah. it's less than having two. That's images. right. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, clever, clever. Um, so this device, they're saying they want to position it between the phone and the laptop, mm. um, and they want it to be able to be folded back to back so that you would have a screen on sort of the front and the back, or flat like a tablet. Or um... interesting, yeah. Although, of course, you know, if you're uh, launching or positioning a new product between a phone and a uh, laptop or a tablet, then you know, I, th- I thought we'd tried that with tablets <laughs> and uh, we decided we didn't like them. Yeah. Because well, they're not one thing or the other. We're not sure. But, it, you know, it looks like an interesting thing. It's obviously something at, um, Microsoft has been working on for some time and mm. it's obviously something they're not really uh, prepared to let go. Um, 
and I, I'm not sure. We keep seeing all this stuff. Is it? You can never tell. Sometimes these things are in the zeitgeist because they are what's coming next, yeah. and sometimes they're just because everybody feels that what should be next, and it doesn't actually take off. We shall see. Yes. We shall see. I mean, I've I've seen in you know I've seen hints and rumours and bits of patents that suggest Apple are also working on similar kind of things. So um, it could be that this is you know where we're going. You have to probably be further into the industry and know more about what's coming down the pike, as they like to say. Yes. Yeah. Than uh, than you and me, Pete. Yeah. I think yeah. to know what how that's going to work out. Um. And and I guess uh, like you, me, you also you read this other story by John Martellaro, who's coming on the show. By the oh, way, is he? Um. Oh, yes. Okay. On fifth uh, of August, he's scheduled to come okay. on and talk to us. Yeah. Um. Why we won't be giving up our Mac keyboard anytime so yeah. soon. Um, and this is, uh, as he says, AI agents are often identified as the next I.O. device and will supplant our traditional keyboards. But John thinks the keyboard will be around for a long time to come. Yeah, and uh, I, I tend to agree with him, I must admit. Yes, I, I think uh, I think so. Uh, and, he, and he also says, uh, what's he say here? Uh, I need to switch to another Mac which had a standard Apple aluminium keyboard. The dark lettering on white, by contrast, seemed dead, even defective and distant. Um, we relate strongly to the sensory aspects of the keyboard, the sight, the sound, and the tactile feedback. Um, keyboards are generally on our minds. Um, yeah. And, and, and then he's, I, I believe he's right. Yeah. Um, it might be that, you know, this old stick in the muds like you and me. <laughs> <laughs> Pete. Yeah. But uh, I, I think there's a lot to be said for a good keyboard. Yes, and uh, much as, so. you know, I very much, you know, uh, I like touch screens and all sorts of other new technology, but there's a lot to be said for a good quality keyboard yeah. if you know how to use it. Yeah, and uh, very recently I had, uh, well, a few months ago I bought uh, an iPad Pro 9.7 and it came with the Apple keyboard, which uh, initially I liked. Because it's very uh, slim and it just attaches to the uh, smart connector via magnets. Um, but then I realized that the, the keys don't light up. Um, and I really miss um, the backlight of the keys, you know, for typing at night, etc. So, I'd, And I wanted to move up to the 12.9-inch uh, iPad Pro, which I've done very recently. And that is a fabulous device, I've got to say. Um, so then I decided to uh, buy a proper uh, keyboard uh, case for it. Okay. And Logitech make two of them. Um, so I, I couldn't decide which one to buy. So I bought both of them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and now I've gone with the um, – uh, I have the, uh, the Create, and now I've got the um, – uh, forgotten what, they've, uh, what they call it, and I'm just looking for it um, now. But essentially, um, it uh, the Create keyboard is a, a a simple keyboard case, and it turns it into like a, a laptop. But you can't um, do anything else. You if you want to put it in landscape mode, you have to take it out of there. Uh, sorry, if you want to, if you put it in portrait mode, you have to take it out of the case or just weirdly turn it on its side. Um, so I changed to the. Um, uh, uh, to their other keyboard uh, case, which um, I can't seem to find the name of at the moment. And uh, that is um, it's like a cross between a proper keyboard with and the Apple 
um, keyboard. It's uh, flexible enough for you to be able to uh, just take it off and stand it up in portrait mode. So I'm, that's the one I'm going to keep. Okay. Right. And right. also it has the um, it also has a uh, a little holder for the uh, the pencil as well. Oh, right. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. So what you're saying is the the, the first one is all right if you really want to turn your iPad into a, a sort of a mini laptop. Two, yeah. Mini laptop, or you know, maybe not that mini if you've got the twelve point nine. Yeah. As big as my as big as my laptop. Um. Uh. But if you prefer the sort of freedom of snap on and off the the other one is the is the better yeah choice. that's it uh, it's, it's the um it's the logitech create there you go there we go yeah no oh, excellent um yeah so i mean john john uh, martellaro here uh is saying apple pays considerable attention to keyboards on laptops uh the famous or infamous butterfly mechanism replacing the older scissor mechanism um backlighting is essential uh, and he's got a list of um some keyboards different keyboards that he likes and uh no i i agree with that yeah. um yeah uh, i i saw on a um uh, a message forum this week uh some some wag had come up with the story that they they're going to replace the uh, the keyboards in the uh, new mac uh, macbook pros with um a keyboard called the moth keyboard it's going to be very much like the apple um butterfly keyboard but was going to be better um but, uh, yeah, he's obviously got a bit of humour. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, but it's only available in grey. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And it only works at night, perhaps. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know, the, I, I know the MacBook Pro 2016, 2017. It's coming for a lot of criticism um, with the keyboard. Well, it, you know, it seems... It, it, I can understand if you have a problem with it, it's going to be a massive problem. Mm. Um, and yet other people were saying they've had no problems with it at all. Mm. So, you know, Apple have got round to admitting that some people have got a problem. Let's put it this way. They admit that they fail more than they ought to. And um, if you've got a problem, they will deal with it. Yeah, which is fair which enough. Is... Which is also very Apple-like, isn't it? Because they, when problems uh, arise, they tend to ignore them until you get to a critical mass of people complaining about something. And then yes. they uh, they don't admit it, but they just launch a... Um... Uh, well, if you do have a problem, we'll fix That's it. That's it, yeah. I love their description, as I put it last week. You know, We have determined that a small percentage of keyboards... Yeah. Um, in a certain models of the, uh, you know, yeah. Apple laptops have a problem. Uh, and this covers, you know, and then it was like basically every laptop since 2015. <laughs> <laughs> um, so essentially it's the, yeah. Butterfly keyboard. It's the butterfly keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, well, what else? Uh, what else? Uh, what else indeed? Okay. We're... We, Running out of stories, I think. Um, well, we've got all the security stuff, which is all a bit depressing. So I, I don't think we want to go into that in too much depth, Pete. But we will, of yeah. course, uh, have word about um, about these. Um, oh, there was a no. I tell you what. Before we do that, there was a piece here which was posted on the Hill. Um, cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ad-based internet is dead, uh-huh. but not because of privacy regulation. Um, and obviously, one of the reasons I picked this up is because it's uh, by Andy Yen. Um, the CEO of Proton, mm-hmm. who, of course, this, who, who this week, of course, have been suffering a massive DDoS. I don't. Uh, if, are you a Proton Mail user? No, I'm not. But um, I, I follow your postings about it uh, yes. regularly. Did you follow? 
did you follow? Have you seen them on Twitter? No, I don't, I don't think know. I have. Maybe don't. Well, well, Proton Mail and Proton VPN have been posting pretty much every day. Yeah. You know, still suffering a, an ongoing DDoS attack. Right. Um, but we are, you know, mostly up, and um, they've been very transparent, um, which is one of the great things. Yeah. You know, they will email as a user, they will email you and tell you we have a problem, and the problem is so. You know, all, all emails are getting through, but some of them are getting delayed, mm. that sort of thing. Um, and they've been completely open all week, saying we're suffering this ongoing attack, but we are still online, we are still, you know, working. Anyway, um, which is good, and they've picked up a lot of kudos for that, um, particularly on Twitter. Mm. You know, with people saying, you know, thanks for the openness and telling us what's going on. Um, so uh, this is on the hill. Um, Andy Yen um, from Proton Mail, uh, as he says here, um, amid the fanfare, the privacy advocates have called for a similar law in the United States. This is uh, he's talking about yeah, the GDPR. GDPR. Yeah. Um, actually, I I also read that California wants to enact something which is very similar to GDPR. Um, and as they say in America, where California leads, the rest of the US tends to follow. Yeah, and then um, and then and then we follow them. Yeah, or except in this case, yeah. we've, oh, we've actually got there first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as he says, this gives the GDPR far too much credit and underestimates the lengths companies will go to to protect their cash crop, which is your private information. Mm. Uh, the GDPR does not stop internet companies from harvesting your personal data, nor does it absolutely require them to use the strongest forms of data security available. Um, as he says, uh, there is another EU data privacy law in the works called e-privacy regulation, um, but this is even weaker on encryption than the GDPR. Uh, and big data companies, particularly Google and Facebook, have mobilised lobbyists to claim this would gut their profits and stifle innovation. Mm. Um, well, I won't go through the whole article, but what he's basically uh, promoting is that actually uh, if privacy and data security uh, gets taken seriously and consumers become aware of how much of their data is being uh, hoovered up. Um, yeah. Uh, and, then, and frankly, if people aren't aware of this, um, then then why not? Because yeah. you know this is all over everywhere. You can't you can't open a newspaper, look at a news story um, uh, without some sort of data privacy um, in, you know, story hitting you in the face. As it says, it's easy to see why uh, these data companies are scared. Online ads are a booming trade, and revenues have increased every year apart from two thousand and eight. Hmm. Um, big data companies control an unimaginable amount of information about all of us. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, uh, up to 15, on average, 1,500 data points on 96% of the US population. Um, yes. And psych they create psychological profiles of the users, categorizing them from, as example, overwhelmed <laughs> or anxious based on their behavior. Mm. Users can only avoid this kind of surveillance by leaving Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, of course, part of the whole data data thing was that they're profiling people who even who aren't on. Yeah, Facebook. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, only three percent of Europeans trust email and cloud storage providers to protect their personal information. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting stat, isn't it? Yes, and in the US, ninety-two percent of people worry about their privacy online. Mm. Allegedly. Yes. Um. Anyway, what Andy uh, is saying here, um, we. You know, uh, the the new money is going to be in privacy focused yeah. services and basically getting teaching users that uh, 
sometimes paying a little bit of money for data privacy might be worth your while. Yes, yeah, because let's face it, uh, companies like um, Google, Facebook um, don't actually make any products. Um, I, no. I know Google make um, uh, have recently started making hardware products, but for an awful long time, they were software company that didn't actually sell you anything um and facebook are the same so you know you got to ask yourself how are they making money yeah, yeah. they're making it's advertising and advertising selling. yeah and then how do they make their adverts more relevant they find out more about you um and it turns out obviously they've been harvesting data without um uh, anyone's knowledge for an awful long time I've, you know, I've said in the past, you know, I always felt that Google at least were kind of upfront about it yeah. when they started Gmail and whatnot. There yeah, was a kind true. of, you know, we will, you know, we are, we are going to offer you this service, but you have to understand that we will target you with ads and whatnot. Um, but gradually over time, and I've said this before, I became less and less comfortable with that hmm. bargain because what was once a fairly explicit bargain about what they wanted in return for their services became more and more fuzzy and yeah. um i've never trusted facebook as far as i can know we, no. we upwind yeah. um so there we go uh okay there we go uh well let's go on to the security and we'll just skim over those i think then we'll we'll probably wrap it up shall yeah we, Pete? okay this this one was quite scary. Uh, the Y Spear I well it says iPhone hacking van. That's that's a that's not really true, is it? It's a phone hacking van. Yeah. Uh, I think they put iPhone in there to get clicks. But the Y Spear phone hacking van is a spy's wet dream. This was on Cult of Mac. Um, and somebody posted here. Uh, this is I believe from a trade show. Right. Oh, the yeah. Spear Long Range Wi-Fi Interception van. van. And there's a picture of a van here that looks like something out of NCIS. Yeah. It's full of screens and whatnot. Um, yeah. It sounds like a prop from Mission Impossible. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Product on, but it, uh, yes, it's actually on sale at a recent trade show. Mm. Um, this tool can supposedly be used to install malware on iOS or Android devices from a third of a mile away. Mm. Allegedly, this forces an iPhone to collect to its Wi-Fi access point, uses a man-in-the-middle attack to snoop the data, uh, and uh, the company behind this tool says it can also install malware. Um, Difficult to see how it would do that on an iOS device, but I'd be interested to see how it works. Uh, developed by Tao Dalian, by the look of it. Dillian, uh, yeah, former head of the Israeli Defense Forces. Mm, mm. Uh, <laughs> right, well, it's $3.5 million to $5 million to buy one. Okay. Um, well, it's pretty scary, isn't it, though? You know. Um, yeah. It appears, uh, right, it appears that the phone or laptop requires to be connected to a Wi-Fi access point and cannot be used to access a device not using Wi-Fi at yeah, all. Yeah, so if you're, um, yeah, if you turn your Wi-Fi off. Mm. But I'm assuming mm. this works on the on the thing of when they say it connect, forces you to connect to its hotspot, I am assuming it's spoofing, um, it's going to spoof, you know, uh, Starbucks or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, something that you've connected to before or something you trust. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I did ask. Uh, the question of Proton, would a VPN such as Proton, you know, hmm. VPN protected from this? Um, I've not had an answer, hmm. probably because they don't know exactly how it works. No. Um, but there you go. A, a VPN's got to be a good protection at least. Uh, 
and don't connect to untrusted Wi-Fi. No. Also, <laughs> uh, the, yeah. uh, the the asking price of three and a half million to five million dollars might put off your average um, uh, yeah, petty criminal. <laughs> petty criminal. Yeah. So well, it, that's it. It's um, it'd just be the governments that are doing this to us, then. <laughs> Yeah, mind you, you know, relatively speaking, that's not <laughs> it's not big money, is it, really, these no, days? No, it's not. Um, realistically speaking, it's not that big amount yeah. of money. Okay, um, the oh, this one's probably worse, I think, Pete. The HMRC oh. uh, disregards user data protection by collecting 5 million UK citizens' voice recordings. Mm. You know, this, this, yes, this was quite... Um, yeah, yeah, because so people are phoning uh, HMRC um I couldn't seem to get through to um pass this um system uh, that asked it to uh, say my voice is my password on an automated line it kept on repeating it although i think they do go on to say that um after about four attempts you can um you can at least then get through and speak to somebody but most people are, have have actually said this and they've had their voice prints um, captured now. Mm. As it say, taxpayers are being railroaded into a mass ID scheme, which is incredibly disturbing, said uh, Sil- mm. Silky Carlo, uh, a director of Big Brother Watch. Um, Taxman is building Big Brother Britain by imposing biometric ID cards on the public by the back door. Um, apparently, callers were unable to speak to an advisor without recording their voice. Mm. According, well, claimed. Claimed by Big Brother Watch. Meanwhile, HMRC declined to provide Big Brother Watch with a copy of the privacy impact assessment, mm. uh, and Big Brother Watch claimed the department has yet to consult with the UK Data Protection. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really concerning. Is that they yes, haven't that, they haven't um, discussed this uh, with the Data Protection uh, Office? As it says here, capturing people's voice recording without freely given consent or making clear what it is used for would be in contravention of the Data Protection Act and also the EU's General Data Protection Regulation (laughs) rules. Unless HMRC can demonstrate a legitimate interest in collecting such data, uh, well, I have to say, I'm pretty sure that uh, the HMRC might have some fairly far-reaching powers, but I don't think recording your voice for yeah. <laughs> voice printing is one of them. Yeah, uh, They're not the CIA. No, and, um, and I see the Information Commissioner's Office is now looking into the issue, so hopefully we should get something um, out of this soon. Mm. And I, I know it's Big Brother Watch managed to get past the system by saying no three yeah. times. I mean, I've... Um, I don't know if it still works, but if you if you get on one of those automated bloody robot things mm. and starts giving you a load of uh, things, and actually you know that none of those things are going to be what you want, mm. um, I get particularly annoyed where you get the ones where it says, you know, touch one if you want yeah. to pay, touch yeah, yeah. two if you want to make an inquiry about, you know, signing up, touch yeah. three, and you know, no, I've got an inquiry, I want to speak yeah. to someone. Um, I don't know if it still works, but it, it used to work, that if you got that, just mash the keyboard. Yeah. Just press loads and loads of buttons. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah I've done that. Random buttons everywhere, and the thing just goes. Error, error. Handing you over to a human being. Um, I'm, you know, I probably shouldn't uh, endorse that, but I do. Yeah. No, I. Don't <laughs> if you get too annoyed, just yeah. bash the buttons until yeah. it gives you somebody. Yeah. We don't understand what you want. We'll yeah. put you through to a human being. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's quite concerning. I don't. Why do the HMRC need to record your voice? Mm. Um. As they their excuses. Um. 
Our voice ID system is popular with customers as it gives a quick and secure route into our systems. Yeah. The ID data storage meets the highest government and industry standards. Well, that does, yeah, yeah. Well, that oh, doesn't tell you anything. No, does it? it doesn't. It fills me with loads of confidence. Yeah, we've locked it up in a vault. No, that's, <laughs> no, that's not the point. The point is you didn't ask me for my permission. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. no, I'm not convinced by that one, no. I'm afraid. Quite possibly done with the best of intentions, but um, no, yeah. no, I'm not. I'm not convinced by yeah. that one. Yeah, watch, watch this like space. That. We will revisit that in a few weeks' time, hopefully. Uh, hopefully, and hopefully to say they've been told either to stop doing it or to um, explicitly ask people if they want to sign up for it. Lovely. Uh, Google and Facebook are quietly fighting California's privacy rights initiative. Uh, this is the um, the bill I we just mentioned, uh, which is similar to the GDPR. And unsurprising, Google and Facebook are sticking the boot in it and hiring lobbyists yeah. to try and um, water it down. Yeah. I don't think we'll even bother to go into that. It's um, and Kel surprise, really. <laughs> yes. Um, people have discovered that scammers are controlling their Apple accounts using a feature for families to share apps. Uh, yeah, that was quite again, concerning. This cropped up. I think it might have been, uh, again, this might have been on Carl's show, the Mac and Forth show. Mm-hmm. Um Scammers in China are hijacking people's Apple IDs uh, and making purchases uh, via the family sharing feature. Mm. Um, yeah, because scammers it, I... are using it to lock the actual lo- owner out of the account and then buy in-app purchases and gift cards. Uh, make sure you have two-factor authentication turned on. Yeah, if you haven't, well, like why not? Yeah. Especially if you've turned on family sharing. That's, yes, um, that'll be. Uh, yeah, I again. Hacking people are hacking into uh, people's Apple IDs. I suspect not. If they were actually breaking into people's Apple IDs, I think that would be a massive story. I suspect they are fishing their way into people's. Yeah, and uh, as we've said for an awful long time, yeah, turn on two-factor authentication. Social engineering and people using rubbish passwords. Sorry. Um. Obviously, I'm sure it's something Apple should look at, but quite realistically, if you haven't got two-factor authentication turned on, why not? Yeah. There's no excuse not to have two-factor authentication. I know when Apple first rolled it out, it could be a bit funky and um, occasionally caused hiccups, but, I mean, it's well-established yeah. now, and it works really, really well. Um, and as, as well as, obviously, the uh, Apple iCloud two-factor authentication, you've got tools like the Google Authenticator, mm. Uh, at the Microsoft Authenticator at mm. the um, the independent Authy, uh, if you don't trust Google or Microsoft to be generating codes for you, um, yeah, there is no reason not you, you know you should be second and third factor authenticating <laughs> everything. Really. Uh, sorry, it's it's a, a slightly sad reflection on where we are, but uh, yes, you should. Um, okay. No, I think we've pretty much done them all, haven't we? I, I think, think so. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you what we we haven't uh, mentioned. The Disney Flying Robot Stunt Double. Um, this was one that somebody, um, uh, who was it? I think it was Donnie. Yes, it was Donnie. Um, and it comes from The Verge. And Disney have created a flying robot stunt double which can pose like a superhero. Humanoid uh, a bot. human bot developed for shows at Disney theme parks. And uh, there's a video of it, and it does uh, look very much like, you know, no, well, is it flying or is it doing controlled falling like uh, Buzz Lightyear? I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, but it looks very good. It does, and, uh, yeah. The video looks yeah. impressive. You know, yeah. and it's 
yeah, it's, it's very clever. Um, so there you go. That's only really worth a, a quick laugh. There's a link there to the Disney video. Um, and they've got, a, yes, a humanoid bird. It does look really quite thing. I mean, it does its arms and everything quite realistically as it takes off. It does, it? yeah. Yeah. So there we go. That's, uh, that's quite a fun little video. Oh, and... Um, the other one, which is, there's no link to this because it was something, uh, just something that uh, Dougie, Andy J has done um, in, in the Slack room. He has built himself a smart mirror um, using a Raspberry Pi um, and a two-way mirror and um, an, old, an old display, an old LCD display. So he's got, wow. um, you know, like a, a bedroom mirror. Yeah. Which, uh, when when the display is off, uh, obviously works just as a mirror, so you can comb your hair yeah. and check your shades and make sure you got no cabbage in the teeth. And um, when you turn the screen on, he's got a Raspberry Pi in there um, with a display, which you know obviously lights up and shows through the fifty percent mirror, allowing him to look at the news or whatever. Clever, very clever. Um, I like, yeah, I like the sound of that. Nice little, uh, nice little project that he made for himself with a Raspberry Pi and a mirror and some bits and. Uh, here we go. What does he say? Uh, finished my smart mirror project. Really pleased with how it turned out. It's a good way of making use of an old monitor. It runs on a Raspberry Pi, and the screen is set behind two-way glass. Um, and it's, I don't know, looks like a like a bathroom mirror, basically. It's a v- very clever. Very clever. So there we go. Right then, Pete. Okay. Um, where can we find you? Uh, well, I'm, I occasionally tweet um uh at homeboy on twitter or suffolk pete but uh apart from that you know i'm so paranoid about um <laughs> information being stolen that i stay clear of most other social networking sites i don't blame you mate. i don't blame you right well that's fine thank you for coming okay, on okay no worries uh we are of course essential apple and we are on the twitter as at essential apple and i am on the twitters as at serenak and that's s-e-r-e-n-a-k uh you can find the uh essential apple website at essentialapple.com and i think that's probably about it uh we do of course have a patreon and we have a pinecast tips jar links on the website if you want to support us by giving us money please give us money we're poor give us money we like money (laughs) please send us money uh no if you if you know and thank you to the people who do support us we we really do you know we really do appreciate it. it doesn't have to be much a pound a month a couple of pounds all helps pay for hosting and uh, the Pinecast and uh, all the rest of the things. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's probably about it, Pete. So uh, okay. thank you once again for coming on. And uh, let's say goodbye okay. and no bugger problem. off out into the sunshine, shall we? Yep. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are part of the MyMac.com podcasting network, where you can find such excellent shows as Guy and Gaz on the MyMac show, Tim and David on the Tech Fan show, the Three Geeky Ladies, the Geekiest Show Ever, uh, the excellent Bart Bouchotts with his Let's Talk, the Club Nintendo, and many, many more. Hello, I'm Guy. And I'm Gaz from the MyMac.com podcast. And we're here to tell you about a very serious condition plaguing Mac users everywhere. It's known as BPSI, or Boring Podcast Sleep Induction. It can happen anytime, anywhere, while listening to dull podcasts and driving. You can prevent BPSI 
by subscribing to the MyMac.com podcast on iTunes. Our podcast is many things, <laughs> but never boring. Available without a doctor's prescription. The MyMac.com podcast is not responsible for loss of bodily functions while laughing. Side effects include blurred vision, nervous tics, trying not to smile, angry yelling when we say something wrong, and the inability to call our Skype number, which is 703-436-9501. Women trying to become pregnant should not be listening to the MyMac.com podcast, as it will take time away from having sex, which you normally need to do to become pregnant. So remember, listen to the MyMac.com podcast. Think of the children. I bought a new monitor, by the way. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, last time we spoke, I was uh, wondering whether to go for a 4K mm-hmm. display, and I did. Uh, but I think I'm going to go back to an ultra wide 21 by 9. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, I've narrowed it down. Now. I'm going to go for a Dell um, curved. 21 by 9 so i'm i'm gonna have two monitors for sale soon <laughs> oh yeah so one. what did what what happened to your other big one though and you wanted a, a bed it off? is in the front um yeah it's just in the front bedroom <laughs> i uh i thought I'd, i'll give the um 4k uh, a go and i quite like it um it does make the um text in the menu bars and the like quite small but not unreadable i found the, the biggest thing i found when i got a 5k iMac yeah was the the thing that drew me the most at the start is that things like guidelines in um in design and photoshop yeah become like about a quarter of the width they were before <sighs> yeah i can imagine the general size of the interface doesn't change but no. things like guidelines you know you draw pull a guideline down in illustrator yeah or or in design or quark or whatever which used to look like they were a you know fairly fat sort of cyan line yeah line or whatever now they're like one pixel thick <laughs> you know what i haven't tried that i'm i'm just about to they probably were one pixel thick before it's just that one pixel was a lot bigger yeah uh, it's all right once i got used to it but at first it was like where's all the bloody guidelines gone <laughs> The thing was, yeah, yeah change the colour, change the cut, go into the preferences, and make the colours a bit brighter. Make right. Them, so I've got like yeah. electric oh, yeah, cyan man. and bloody, you know, yeah. RGB magenta now, so that they can, so I can actually see them because they, <laughs> yeah, go down to about yeah. a tenth of a point. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Yeah, mm, I, I haven't tried um, Quark in this yet either. But um, you, you get used to it, but just the first time you yeah. one, it was like, did I just pull a guide out or not? Oh no, it's an airline <laughs> going across the page there. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing is that it's a it's a TN um, display, although um, uh, Tom's Hardware, all right, um, gave it a really good review um, and said, you know, if you're you, you if you're going to use it for semi-professional work. Um, and you're on a budget, then this is um, this 10-bit um, TN display is almost as good as an uh, IPS. And also, out of the box, it's uh, it's calibrated really well. Oh right, that's good. And it, and it is because I've tried the um, uh, I've tried calibrating it, and there's a small there's a small difference. All right, that's good then. That's- yeah. Essential Apple Podcast. Goodbye and thank you for listening.